Welcome to Bitch Talk, booze interviews straight from the heart of San Francisco. I'm Erin. That's Ange. Hi. That's Char. Hello. You can find us at bitchtalkpodcast.com where you can sign up for our monthly e-news. For behind-the-scenes videos and two-minute clips of our interviews, head to our YouTube channel and subscribe. You can find us every other Thursday morning at 9.30 a.m. at bff.fm. And if you like what you hear, rate and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. For the love of God, do it. It really helps. We have Erica Cohn on the show. She's the director of the documentary Belly of the Beast. We're so pleased to have her here. And um, I'm going to start off asking if you can uh, tell our audience a little bit about your film. And then how did you find the story? Yeah, in 2010, a decade ago, I was introduced to one of the protagonists in the film, attorney Cynthia Chandler. And she had this organization called Justice Now, which was one of the only organizations in the country at the time, perhaps the only organization that had board members who are currently incarcerated, really informing strategy and informing policy from the inside out, as opposed to so many other organizations that work from the outside in. And they had this campaign called the Let Our Families Have a Future campaign, which essentially exposed the multiple ways that prisons destroy the basic fundamental human right to family. One of the most heinous, of course, being the illegal sterilizations, primarily targeting women of color. And to me, immediately that screamed eugenics. You know, as a Jewish woman, the phrase never again was always profoundly in the back of my mind. And when I learned about this different kind of genocide that was happening through imprisonment, that was happening through forced sterilizations behind bars, I knew that I wanted to get involved some way, somehow. And initially that was as a volunteer. Cynthia actually invited me into the organization where I became a volunteer legal advocate, providing direct services for over 150 people inside California's women's prisons. And from there really began collaborating with people inside on a project that would ultimately become Belly of the Beast. And the initial idea with this film was to chronicle the incredible human rights documentation process that was happening inside prison. You know, how that information that the prison didn't want to get out, didn't want to be exposed, was funneled out through this amazing underground network of activists. And that all changed when I met our other protagonist who the film completely centers around, Kelly Dillon. And I met her a couple of years into the process. And at the time she was working as a gang interventionist and um, domestic violence counselor doing a lot of community intervention work. And when I first met her, I asked her if she wanted to be involved. She was a sterilization survivor. She was the initial catalyst to expose this entire issue to begin with. I have to say, if it wasn't for Kelly, there wouldn't be a film. You know, mm. there, wouldn't, there wouldn't have been this incredible, um, you know, reporting that came from her work. We wouldn't even know that this existed or the scale to which it existed. And at you know, at that moment, she wasn't interested in telling her story, but was very interested in becoming involved behind the scenes as an advisor. 
And so as we went on through this journey together, everything changed when the Center for Investigative Reporting in 2013 released their series of articles by Corey Johnson, who's also in the film. Mm -hmm. Uh, And all of a sudden there was this tremendous momentum this huge national attention, potential for legislation, potential for real legal action. And that was the moment that Kelly got called back into the movement, sucked back in to tell her story. And that was the moment that Kelly and I both decided that we would start filming her on her way to testify. And the more we filmed with her in front of the camera, it became more and more clear that the story really needed to center around her experiences her courage in advocating for others inside prison and how she continues to do the work um, outside of prison as well. So that's kind of how it all got started and you know how this collaboration be- came to be. And so the film really follows Kelly Dillon and Cynthia Chandler as they take on the Department of Corrections, exposing modern day eugenics and reproductive injustice in our prison system. Ooh, wow. Yeah. Let, yeah it's, let, I, I want everyone to let that digest in let for it, a minute. Let it sink in. Yeah. 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 And I think uh, Belly of the Beast is really just another example of this is why documentaries are so important. Mm-hmm. You put a spotlight on so many things that we're both ca- born and raised in California. So many things that I did not know. I didn't know that California was the home to the largest women's prison in the world. Yep. I, I, obviously didn't know the history of eugenics in California and that sterilization, that it had to even be illegal at one point in prisons. Like I would never even think that 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 would be a necessity, let alone that it was happening and to the rate that it was happening in. And, um, you know, obviously Kelly's bravery sparked it all, but, but how did you feel when speaking with other women that this happened to, like, were they open to speak about this? I mean, there's just such a stigma and fear of retaliation, fear of so many things. What was your experience in, in um, talking to other women that this happened to? Well, I just want to, you know, comment on something that you just said. When I first started this this project, I didn't know that Nazi Germany actually came to California to learn from California's mm-hmm. heinous eugenics policies. And that was something that was really important to me. You know, we think of eugenics as something that's associated with Nazi Germany and have no idea that this is like homegrown in our country, in our California. And so it was really important to connect that historical precedence as well as the legacy of forced sterilization in the country and how it's so deeply rooted in white supremacy. And so when we look at these as isolated incidents, they're incredibly shocking. But when we look at them with historical context, um, it's, it's more, um, it's understandable to see where this really comes from. And until there's accountability, these heinous abuses will continue to occur. In terms of, you know, how many people this happened to and what it was like speaking to the survivors. I mean, through our own reporting process, we found that 1400 people were sterilized in California's women's prisons between 1997 and 2013. And in the beginning of this film, prior to the Center for Investigative Reporting releasing their findings, no one believed me that this was happening. No funder, believed that this could actually be happening. And so the trying to get this project off the ground was incredibly difficult, despite the fact that from my legal advocacy work and through Justice Now, we had hundreds 
of testimonials talking about what had happened to them. And there's a lot of, you know, a lot of barriers that prevent people from coming forward. And so, you know, just the, the, the hundred, you know, people that we had spoken with or the hundred cases that we knew about, we knew there were so many more because people oftentimes don't come forward out of shame, you know, not wanting to experience um, or relive the trauma or feeling like it's their fault, what happened to them. Um, and in addition to that, you know, prisons are retaliatory environments, as you mentioned, and your daily existence is threatened by force. And so in order to be eligible for litigation, one has to file a complaint against the person who committed that harm against them. So people don't do that out of fear of retaliation. And in addition to it being a retaliatory environment for people who are incarcerated, it's also retaliatory for those who work in the prison. And so we saw this past fall, a really unique situation with the whistleblower Don Wooten from the Georgia Immigration Detention Center when she exposed the mass hysterectomies that were going on mm. um, in that facility. And it's because of her courageous, you know, in just, I mean, her courageousness and deep commitment to, you know, exposing these human rights abuses that she faced retaliation, you know, just by questioning the procedures and then, you know, even more retaliation when she finally came forward. So it's very unique that, you know, people like Kelly actually pursue litigation inside or whistleblowers like Don Wooten can come forward. Um, was Cynthia an easy yes uh, to your project or did you really have to work your volunteerism, you know, and, and work her into saying yes to your project? I don't think this film could have happened if I was not so deeply embedded in the movement. And this film was made in collaboration with those who are directly impacted. It was made for and with people who are incarcerated. It was made with Cynthia and Kelly. And so there was a tremendous level of trust and tremendous level of collaboration that allowed this film to happen. So I think um, I remember talking to Cynthia the first time and feeling like I had to, I mean, First of all, Cynthia is a badass. Kelly is a badass. I mean, this is a team of <laughs> incredible fucking women. Yeah. Have together correct. in like one film. I mean, it just like <laughs> it's it's amazing. Including mm -hmm. yourself. Anyway, go on. Thank you. Thank you. But I felt like I, I, I remember the first time I was talking to Cynthia about how I wanted to do this film. And I felt like I had to quickly talk about the history of eugenics and like prove to her that I was going, I was like, okay, so we're gonna have this film and we're gonna talk about eugenics. And this is, you know, imprisonment as a form of reproductive oppression. And I was just like trying to go through everything as quickly as I could. And she's like, Erica, like chill, you're good. <laughs> you know, because I just had so much, I, I wanted, I wanted, I wanted to feel like I was in their class of brilliance that, you know, mm. I had to prove to them that I could, I could rise to their level because they were all such amazing, brilliant, innovative women. Yeah. I, on a, just a side note, I loved Cynthia's story and I love that she came from a punk rock uh, background. That was, I, I appreciated that storyline a lot. And also that activism, uh, if you're a real activist and this is your work, it never stops. And she was exhausted. And I appreciated you talking with her kids and how that affected their family life. So sorry, Ange, go ahead. 
No, I agree. I was I was going to say that exact thing. I, oh. I I think that her story is is such an important thing to talk about as well because her arc, you know, coming from a punk background, she that's what sparked her activism when she realized like, you know what, my life can end up differently than everyone I'm hanging out with just because of race and, yeah. and class privilege. Something's wrong there. You know, so that really sparked her activism and and yeah, the fact that her kids consider activism a bad thing because it, it mm. takes their mom away from them, you know? So it's just a multi-layered thing, and you know, and obviously these survivors are what you do it for, but it's repercussions are just endless. You know, everyone that it affects, it just trickles down. Yeah, one of my favorite, one of my favorite scenes is, you know, around the dinner table, they're doing their homework and um, they talk about how <laughs> activism, activism is boring and they, you know, she'd rather do genetics. Ditto. You don't even know what genetics are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All the neurons are amazing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah they're hilarious. <laughs> and just the candidness, you know, that she cries a lot. She goes to a prison in the desert. Yes. You know, and you, you see through their humor um, the impact and the toll it takes on their family. Yeah. Um, and that's why I asked about the trust factor with Cynthia, because you were there early in the morning, you were there at night. I mean, you were in their house following them. Um, and that takes a lot of trust between director and subject. Um, and I think, you know, we, we're actually trying to shift in, in terms of this film, we don't think of Cynthia Kelly and everyone else's subjects, their participants, because they were really actively participating in the filmmaking process. And it also takes the, like the objective um, distanced gaze mm. away and really, you know, cultivates the intimacy because a subject and a filmmaker, there's so, there's so many power dynamics, even within the, the, that language and that, that approach. I wanted to ask you, because you sort of end on this note um, about the reparations bill and that Kelly um, was really fighting for that and Cynthia, do you have any more information about what's going on with that? And I love that Kelly is now like, she's in it to win it. She's like, I'm here and we're gonna get reparations. There's a lot going on with the reparations movement. And I'm so, I'm so happy that you highlighted that scene too, because I will tell you, we thought we were finished with the film and the, you know, many things happened at the, at, towards the end of the process. We found the deposition footage of Kelly. We found the whistleblower nurses and the reparations movement gained momentum. And so all of a sudden we had an ending scene. But what's really fascinating about this process is we knew we wanted to have a musical voice of the film. We knew we wanted to get someone involved um, to, to really help tell the story of the survivors through music. So we asked people, you know, who were advising the film, who were in prison, you know, who do you want to be the musical voice of the film? If you could have anyone in the world, who would it be? And literally everyone said, it has to be Mary J. Blige. Ooh. Thanks a lot, Erica. Yes. I had that as my like, last <laughs> question. <laughs> Sorry, it has to be the scene. I love it. Because we yeah. love Mary yeah. J. Blige. Yeah. Keep going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Love it. So... We sent the cut to Mary J. It was a rough <laughs> as, as you do. You I just mean, sent just, it over. Yeah. You just press send to Mary J. Blige. <laughs> we, went through, we went through our incredible music supervisor, Tracy McKnight, and we wrote a letter explaining kind of our process of making this film and how her music helped so many people inside prison get through their time inside mm -hmm. and how we all wanted her to be the musical voice. But the mm -hmm. film wasn't finished. And so typically when you approach an, a, 
of an artist to be, you know, to write an original song for a film, it would, the film would be done. She loved the film. She said yes immediately, but we didn't have an ending. So it was this fascinating, unique creative process of trying to come up with how the film would end. And like, just through like so much synergy, the reparations movement happened at the same time the hearings were happening, the same time we were talking to, to Mary and her team, DJ Camper and Nova Wave. And we said, you know, we want people to be inspired when they leave this film. The reparations movement has not yet gained enough traction. It has not yet passed. We have to inspire people to create change, to take action. But we don't want this to be neatly tied up in a bow because it's not a happy ending yet. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. Kelly hasn't gotten her happy ending. And how can you tie a story like this up neatly in a bow when there's so much wor work to be done and the modern day eugenics is still at work. And so we went back and forth. We found this incredible moment, you know, to, to film with Cynthia and Kelly and um, I mean, Mary J and, and her team really created a song that could not have articulated the film's message in any better way. And that's what we end the film on. That's what we cut the ending scene to. And so where we are now in the reparations movement is that there is a, a bill and a budget request to pass reparations for those who were illegally sterilized in California's women's prisons, as well as those who were sterilized historically through the historic eugenics program. And the reparations uh, movement also calls for everyone who still to this day doesn't know that they were sterilized to be notified, which is so important to note that so many people still don't know to this day. Insane, yeah. As well as having a historical monument that acknowledges California's heinous eugenics past so that it may never continue again. And I really believe and our team really believes that California's reparations bill will be key to ensuring that incidents like what happened in the Georgia Detention Center and other illegal sterilizations across this country don't continue to occur. So I have to say, go to bellyofthebeastfilm.com and sign our petition for reparations for California's forced sterilization survivors. Great. Yeah, I, I just wanted to bring up one other thing because it's just, obviously this is, it's heinous what has happened to these women. And I can speak for my co-host and I, we can say we're so sick of women's bodies being up for debate and yep. in the hands of the government or law enforcement or, or whoever it is. And, and who are we to deem who's worthy to be parents? It's just so, it's crazy to me. And if we really want to reform our prison systems and you know we need to start looking at each other as equals and realizing that we're more than the worst thing that we did one day you know and and it's just it's bigger than that and and thank you for for highlighting all of that and it just adds to our fury which we can <laughs> translate into into work and, and spreading the word about your film and and the works of the justice network on women and organizations like that thank you thank you erica thank you so much for this film i mean i think Ange and I are in separate places right now, but I think it, it really made an impact. So, and Justice Now is in our backyard. So, yes, so proud. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you.
If you like what you hear, rate and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about us, you can head to bitchtalkpodcast.com. This podcast is created, hosted, and executive produced by Aaron Lim. My co-host is Angela Tabora, a.k.a. Captain Party. The show's edited by producer Shar. We're powered by GoTo Productions. Go to Productions.